I'm Andrew Schwartz, and you're listening to The Truth of the Matter, a podcast by CSIS where we break down the top policy issues of the day and talk with the people that can help us best understand what's really going on. To get to the truth of the matter about the United States liquefied natural gas and a new report by CSIS's Joseph Mikut and Leslie Palti Guzman called Remapping Energy Security, I have with us Joseph Mikut, who's the director of our energy and climate change program. And I also have Leslie Palti Guzman, who is a senior associate with CSIS. And she's also co founder of the company Gas Vista, which is a data and analytics firm. Welcome, both of you, to the podcast. Hi, Andrew. Thanks for having us. Hey, good to see you, Andrew. Good to see you all, too. So, you guys just recently published a report on U.S. liquefied natural gas and energy security. Of course, we refer to liquefied natural gas as LNG. Can you give us some context for? what this report's all about, and why you did it. I was primarily curious about this, what I thought had been a profound market shift since the invasion uh, of Ukraine by Russia, and the a sort of rising essential nature of the U.S. LNG industry for, for European energy security. And Leslie is tied to our program her company is kind of deep in the data and analytics associated with LNG trade flows. So it seemed like a great opportunity to partner. You know, I think a lot of policymakers, a lot of thought leaders, people in the CSIS audience sort of vaguely know that this is going on. But what we were able to do is really show what has happened and then dive deep into some of the issues that we think are going to be raised by these profound market shifts over the next few years. This report, which you can find at CSIS.org, the new CSIS.org, I might add, we have a new website, is a beautiful digital feature report, and it really visualizes what we're talking about here. But since this is an audio podcast, Leslie, can you give us a sense of, of what this is all about? Absolutely. To second, Joseph, I think it was really important to pause a moment and take stock of what happened, what just happened. It's in a way a tectonic shift. If you remember, like back in 2020, natural gas had become a dirty word. Policymakers across the Atlantic, but also in the US, only wanted to talk about wind, solar, hydrogen. And in a way, US LNG was vilified. You know, it was the dirty US frack gas. And suddenly, two tectonic shifts happened in 2022, basically. One is that gas and LNG was on everybody's lips. It was the buzzword of 2022 and a recognition in a way that natural gas is going to be part of the energy transition. And two, that U.S. shale gas actually was indispensable to rescue Europe from the lack of Russian gas. And what we have put into light in the report is that by the end of the year, Russia was the second largest source of natural gas in Europe after Norway. And, you know, when you were talking to Europeans a few years ago, or even like three years ago, nobody would have believed that they could live without Russian gas. You all mentioned in your report that developing markets may lead to higher emission energy alternatives for the long term if gas prices remain as high as they have been this past winter. Can you explain what the impact would be of these higher emissions alternatives? Basically, the, the world was constrained in, in supply 
starting, you know, second half of 2021 and, and the whole 2022, because we re Russia decided on its own unilaterally to cut supply to Europe. And basically, Europeans found themselves in need of compensation for those volumes. And they turned to in all directions through market forces, but also some energy diplomacy. They managed to attract a lot of supply from other sources because their price prices went so high. And if you take LNG, LNG is following the premium market. The molecule is going to the market that is able to pay the most. And so Europeans attracted a lot of the LNG worldwide, but at the expense of other markets. And what we found out is that if you look at the eight largest importers around the world in 2022, they have concentrated 74% of all the trade flows. And among them, a few Europeans, but also the largest rich Asian nations. But it means that many emerging markets were left with coal, which is higher in terms of emissions, or fuel oil. And a few years ago, around the world, uh, the narrative was to encourage emerging markets to switch away from dirtier fuels to use, to use more natural gas. But this agenda has been derailed last year because of these higher prices. So there is a whole question in terms of energy transition with these, these economies in Southeast Asia, South Asia, Latin America, and whether gas would still have a role to play in these economies, and maybe not as long as prices are so high. Andrew, I think that this is like such an important issue to, to talk about. It's sort of counterintuitive, right? At the, at the moment where after the Paris Agreement and, and a rising sense that we need to reduce greenhouse gas emissions, you have this like sort of brand new industry rise up in the U.S. really over the last decade for, for LNG export. And one of the things we really wanted to understand was the tensions, the potential conflicts, the trade-offs that accompany a growing U.S. LNG export industry and one that is demonstrably, from our report, incredibly important for EU energy security, with this longer-term challenge of reducing greenhouse gas emissions. The sales point for LNG has always been, if you use it appropriately, if it goes to the right end uses, like replacing coal in the power sector of developing countries, then developing this industry actually has climate benefit, in addition to providing energy security abroad and jobs here in the United States. We really need to make sure that the market conditions will allow that to continue to be the case and the benefits of LNG will be realized over time. And here is where the events over the last year create some tension points because of the high prices and the sense that LNG is not as secure as it, as it may have been a couple of years ago. So Joseph, let me just follow up on that. Explain how Russia has been weaponizing natural gas exports this year, but also historically over the years. And Explain why that matters and explain where that leaves the United States. I would like to start even slightly earlier and say that the gas trade between Europe and Russia developed as an instrument of peace. During the Cold War, tension between the West and the Soviet Union was partially ameliorated by economic integration. Russia has a lot of gas resources that can be produced relatively inexpensively and shipped by pipeline into Europe. We've all seen the debates over expansion of those pipelines, the very controversial Nord Stream 1, Nord Stream 2. Um, and the European economy, especially the major exporters, relied on that relatively inexpensive gas to cleanly fuel a, a large industry in a large industrial base. Now, the challenge with gas is 
the infrastructure necessary to carry it and store it is expensive. We don't want to have a lot of it around, right? You don't want a lot of excess capacity in this system. So for Russia, this was seen as a, a real potential source of geopolitical power. If we can turn the tap down and limit Europe's access to natural gas, we'll threaten the economy of Europe, we'll threaten their energy security, and there aren't necessarily other places to turn, right? That was the gambit that Putin and the Russian energy apparatus embarked upon starting last summer when they were started reducing deliveries of Russian gas into Europe. This was as prelude to the invasion of Ukraine, but maybe a signal that they were planning to demonstrate this power and use it as a lever to prevent Europe from coalescing behind Ukraine. Over the course of the war, over the course of now almost an entire year, Russian deliveries have gone down and down. There was a bit of a tet for tet, right? So Germany did not approve the Nord Stream 2 pipeline for flows. Russia found ways to reduce deliveries. I believe they violated delivery contracts. Is that right, Leslie? Yes, in a way. But then they called for force measure. And actually, I think we'll see some arbitration in the future about those contracts. There was this tet a tet. Europe didn't approve pipelines as they were setting up sanctions across a lot of other places, but gas was one of the last places you necessarily wanted to sanction. But Russia was also withdrawing deliveries over the course of the whole year. And so Europe had to look to other sources of natural gas to heat homes, to power the economy, and to have enough gas to run in its industrial base. U.S. LNG ended up playing an incredible role in providing that alternative resource that didn't come for free. And the pressure that was created by Russia withdrawing its gas was then not able to break European resolve when it comes to Ukraine. So as Europe's energy supply increasingly relies on the United States and its LNG exports, what does this mean for the U.S. energy industry? And what does it mean for transatlantic relationships as a whole? To build on what Joseph mentioned, there are a few silver linings out of this crisis. One is that the transatlantic relationship has straightened. And I think, you know, Russia was counting maybe on divisions among Europeans, but also divisions between the US and Europe. And this has not happened yet. The war is not over, but we've seen that despite high energy and electricity prices in Europe, Despite the fact that the industry in Europe has been suffering a lot in 2022 and it's not over, the transatlantic relationship has maintained its strength. There are some complaints. We've seen that France, for example, when Emmanuel Macron visited the White House a few months ago, he called on the U.S. industry profiteering uh, from the crisis in a way, which is not the case because the companies that are exporting U.S. LNG are actually the one making profits uh, and margins between the price of gas in the US and the price that they sell the gas in Europe. Most of these companies are traders, uh, portfolio players, very often European groups. Some, a few of them are American companies, but also Asian utilities. So there is a wide diversity. And as you know, the U.S. government doesn't have a state-owned company. So it's not the U.S. government profiteering here from the crisis directly. That's important to mention, the one, that the transatlantic relationship, the bond, is stronger. And actually, the trade of LNG will enable 
stronger relationship in climate and energy going forward because the Europeans and Americans are sharing the same goal of decarbonization all along the value chain of natural gas. And the, the supply chain of LNG can help with that, with the ports, with the tankers, when they will be able to reduce more fully methane emission, fugitive methane emission from the US LNG, but also when it arrives in Europe. Um, on both sides of the Atlantic right now, they are talking about regulations on this front. We can also look at the shipping lane that right now are being used for LNG, but maybe one day they will be used to export bio-LNG, synthetic LNG, blue ammonia hydrogen that one day will be converted into some kind of green hydrogen. There are many things that are being considered. This transatlantic bond will be useful for those um, future trades. Second, I think the, the U.S. industry, you know, at the beginning of the Biden administration was not getting that much support from the government. I think that has evolved. And we see that now the Biden administration is fully supporting and understanding energy security as a priority for global energy systems. And in this regard, we see that all the different agencies in the U.S. are going to support the goal of U.S. LNG exports without intervening in curbing in any way production and, and exports. The priority is going to be on greening U.S. LNG. And, and that's going to be very important also for the marketing of U.S. LNG abroad, because Europe, but also in the future, potentially Asian buyers will be keen on seeing gas that has less emissions, whether it's being produced with more environmental friendly considerations and being cleaner when it arrives in those markets. You know, one of the key questions I think we have all in our minds as Americans is, will the United States be able to get Europe through this crisis, this cold winter? with what we already have existing. Currently, the United States has seven large-scale liquefaction plants in operation. As your report points out and actually visualizes quite well, they're concentrated along the Gulf coastlines of Texas and Louisiana. There is a really strong demand for U.S. LNG, and it means that these facilities are being run close to or above maximum capacity. So the question I have is, are we going to be able to help get Europe through this Ukraine war this winter and possibly for the future? Yeah, that's a very good question. U.S. LNG exports have been raising steadily over the, since exports started in 2016. However, the incremental supply, the big bump, is only going to come around 2025. So right now, the U.S. this year... And in 2024, they are just ramping up the, the existing facilities that are running at almost full utilization. We saw that US LNG can be vulnerable to outages. The Freeport facility was closed most of 2022, and that removed 17% of US LNG exports from the US production. That was non-negligible. And going forward, the critical question is going to be Asian demand because Asia and Europe can compete to attract this supply, this incremental supply. And so you have to look at who has contracted this new supply coming into the market. And a big wild card 
for many things in today's world is China. And that's the case also for the global gas market. So China, until recently, was this world gas giant absorbing everything it can. Except that last year, Chinese gas consumption reduced by about 18%, 18-20%. And that was a big departure from a growth trajectory that had not stopped for a couple of years. So the question in everybody's mind is, will China continue to resell its unwanted LNG to Europe like it did in 2022? Or will post-lockdown Post downturn of the economy, China consume again most of the world's LNG. And they were about to become the largest LNG importer last year. That didn't happen. They didn't import more LNG, but actually they increased their imports from Russia pipeline gas and from Russian LNG, which is interesting because they have managed to prioritize their trade partners, right? The imports from the U.S. completely dropped, but despite their decline in overall LNG consumption, they managed to increase their consumption from Russia. So that's an interesting point to keep in mind, because China has been able to use its trade policies for retaliation or scoring political points whenever it wanted, and that is dangerous also in the future, potentially, for some U.S. LNG projects that have overcontracted with Chinese companies. Both when we look at the last year and we look at the outlook, it's important to recognize that Europe has gotten through the, the, the past year and looks likely to get through this winter without encountering the nightmare scenarios that we were worried about, let's say, last spring. So the way that that happened is Europe bought a lot of gas off global markets, the U.S. being one of the biggest kind of swing providers in that case, to fill storage and prepare for the winter. They also instituted a lot of efficiency measures, reductions in demand. You were reading weekly stories of factories closing in Europe or shutting down temporarily because of the high cost of energy. And it is true that despite all that, Europe has gotten relatively lucky and looks like it'll make through the year. The winter weather has been relatively benign. The fall was quite warm. And that meant that the, the heating load was less than you would have expected. So sort of everything went right. Europe showed that it had the ability to build new import capacity quickly. Global LNG markets, in particular U.S. LNG, were able to shift supply over. As we look at the next few years, it's going to take time to add capacity to the global LNG market. And, and that means we're going to have to be, you know, Europe's going to have to be prepared for next winter, the winter after. This is not going to resolve overnight. But what we've seen over the last year is the U.S. industry playing a really vital role, not just in supporting Europe, but in providing global energy security. That's a new role for the U.S. to play for the rest of the world. Tell me more about that, Joseph. Why is it so important? And can we do that without really hurting our environment, provide global security for the world? This is really interesting, right? Is you know, th- this is an industry that has risen really over the last decade, where the U.S. turned into a, a top LNG exporter. When I was in college, we were thinking about importing LNG into the United States. The Shell Revolution made available this resource that, that, that the U.S. now can try to use productively. The energy security storyline is really clear. We've talked about it in this report. It's been important for Europe. And potentially will be important for a lot of countries as they go about navigating the energy transition. The climate side of things, 
we have to be careful. You can't overbuild all this stuff to deliver LNG to the world market in a world that wants to go to net zero emissions by mid-century. So what really matters there, as Leslie was saying earlier, is our ability to produce gas at the cleanest possible way. You know, so all the pipelines, the, inf the storage tanks, the infrastructure that brings gas from fields to liquefaction facilities, that should have leakage rates as minimal as we, they can be made, right? And that's a matter of environmental regulation. It's a matter of clean corporate practice. We should make sure that the liquefaction facilities themselves are taking advantage of, of all of the technology that is available to reduce the emissions of that enterprise, which is energy intensive and can release a lot of carbon dioxide and methane, natural gas being methane and a strong greenhouse gas. And then we, we need to be thoughtful about where the U.S. And, and where the globe wants to most productively use LNG to reduce emissions and provide energy security. The other thing that we need to be thoughtful at thinking about here in the U.S. is what does a, a larger export industry mean for domestic prices? Natural gas and the availability of natural gas means that U.S. power prices can be pretty low. Our industrial production is both less expensive than many peers and less carbon intensive because of this resource. And it is possible that as the export industry grows, that will create price pressures for domestic markets here in the U.S., we saw some signal of that over the past year, but where a lot of analysts are just sort of waiting for that conflict to arise. And there, I think we'll see the political class get, want to get more involved as a sort of like an increasing export industry yields like a positive trade balance, geopolitical benefits, but might cause challenges at home. You know, when we think about the, this rising export industry and the U.S. playing an important role in global energy security, it's really interesting to think about what that's going to mean domestically. On the one hand, you might think, okay, we're going to be exporting all this gas. It'll raise prices. That'll create political pressure at home. That'll reduce our ability to use gas in the power sector or for our own industrial production. But there are multiple things in the energy system that are all moving at once right now. So if you think about the, the bills that were passed over the past year, last year, especially the Inflation Reduction Act, which has all these subsidies for clean energy deployment, what we might find is that the U.S. five, six, ten years from now is a lot less reliant on natural gas as we're using a lot more renewables. And that creates space to export more without a net climate impact necessarily or without a lot of price impacts here in the United States. That, to me, the, the contours of that conversation between domestic prices for energy here in the U.S., this sort of industry that is rising in importance for the world, and navigating the energy transition is some of the most interesting areas to explore. And I think policymakers are going to have to learn a lot about what has been a small but complicated industry as they, as they try to navigate that area themselves. Final question. You all mentioned China in this equation. What would Chinese participation in the LNG trade mean for the United States? So overall, we have a hyper focus on Europe right now because of the, of the war in Ukraine. But traditionally, Asia has been the main engine of growth uh, in terms of gas consumption globally. And this is where potentially where the U.S. should be focusing in terms of future trade flows. However, this crisis is really putting 
you know, into discussion whether Asia will still be the engine of growth and whether Europe, you know, will still have 10, 20 years in terms of, like what's on the horizon before gas demand peaks, you know, globally. Like that's a big question. And actually it, it fits into what Joseph was saying because you want to build infrastructure, but you don't want to overbuild. So China has a long-term view and plays the long-term game. And they have understood that they don't have the luxury to say no to any sources of energy. They, they are doing all the above. And yes, they want potentially less coal in their mix. But for now, they absorb coal, gas, nuclear, renewable, building their clean energy and renewables. And they will have the market clout and influence they are starting to build that, but you know, critically for us, it will be managing, you know, who is purchasing under long-term contracts those new volumes coming into place, whether it's in the US or elsewhere, because China will decide whether it wants to consume them, resell them. And if they resell them, they will decide the price at which to resell them. And so China is controlling in a way. They have a, a say in terms of supply security for Europe and demand security for the U.S. They are one of the main off-takers of the future U.S. energy project that are not yet built, but will some of them might be built because they signed the majority of the long-term contracts. And in Europe, we've seen that over the past year, China has resold about 10 million tons of LNG that they didn't want compared to the year before. And most of this LNG found a home in Europe thanks to China and its market behavior. So there is a huge codependence. However, depending on the mood in Washington, D.C. and in Brussels, I think there could be an opportunity here, actually, to do a deal between the U.S., China, and Europe, in a way, where you know there are climate considerations at stake, but also energy trade consideration. And that will allow also not to put China and Russia together all the time in terms of energy security and broader geopolitical alliances. There is an opportunity. China actually wants two things, cheap energy, and that's why they are financing energy projects all around the world. And they don't want war because they want economic growth at home. So that's why I think there is a potential you know, for EU-China-US conversation here. Well, Leslie, Joseph, thank you very much for helping us understand this new report and this critical piece of U.S. energy security and how it affects our climate. Thanks so much. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 